0: Welcome to Healthcare Unconverted. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Lars Andersen from Denmark. A viewpoint that he published along with a couple of co-authors in JAMA caught my attention when he discussed collider bias. And I thought to myself, how many of my colleagues understand the concept of collider bias and how many students, fellows, and people like myself understand the concept and how it could apply to statistical design as we interpret some of the papers that we actually read and published and you know really utilize to decide on treatment or policy interventions. Because of that, I've invited Dr. Anderson to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered to simplify a concept that I believe remains a little bit challenging to the majority of clinicians. What is collider bias? How does collider bias affect the interpretation of clinical trials, whether they are observational or prospective randomized studies? And you know, what do we do to mitigate the impact of collider bias on such interpretation? These are really very important. And I thought no one is better than Dr. Lars Anderson to actually help us understand that concept as much as possible. So I invited him to the show and he generously accepted. And what you will hear today is an episode that we taped on April 25, 2022, where we discussed this concept And we are going to use some examples, especially from the COVID-19 literature, because a lot of the decisions pertaining to how we approached COVID-19 and what we did was actually based on some studies with a lot of biases, such as the collider bias. Before I air the episode, I taped with Dr. Lars Anderson. I would like to plug the show by asking you to rate it, subscribe to it, and write a brief review. Please refer your colleagues and friends to the show because this will really help make sure that the show is easily identifiable and searchable and found. I also would like to ask you to visit my website at www.chadinabhand.com. I also would like for you to, if you have time, to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Chadinabhand and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Lars Anderson on healthcare unfiltered. All right, folks, welcome to healthcare unfiltered again, and uh, Dr. Lars Anderson is with me and. This is the nice thing about uh, Zoom, because we're able to actually talk across the Atlantic. It doesn't matter what time it is of the day and night. And uh, in fact, I believe Dr. Anderson is dialing in from Denmark. So Lars, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your first time on the show. Hopefully it won't be the last time. Depends how you do, you know. But uh, but uh, uh, you're tasked with a very uh, challenging topic. I'll, I'll, I'll tee in for the listeners in a little bit. But before we do that, uh, maybe introduce yourself to listeners, uh, who you are, what you do, and, um, and what's your day-to-day uh, looks like in, in medicine or research.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It's uh, great being here. Uh, so my name is Lars Andersen. I live in Aarhus in Denmark. Aarhus is uh, one of the bigger cities in Denmark, although uh, small on a global scale. I'm an anesthesiologist, and intensive care doctor in training. I have a few years left of a residency um, here in Aarhus. Uh, and then I do uh, clinical research, uh, both observational um, studies and randomized clinical trials. Uh, my uh, focuses primarily on acute and critical illness uh, with a specific interest in cardiac arrest and sepsis and other things that are sort of uh, acute and and critically ill in the
0: ICU. So as part of your training, do you get any formal statistical training or epidemiological training at all as part of the curriculum in Denmark?
1: So I think my uh, path, Uh, is a little unusual uh, because we don't have a lot of statistical or epidemiological training uh, in medical school. There's a little bit, but it's very, very basic. Um, However, after medical school, I did a a PhD in clinical research, which is sort of a broad topic here in Denmark. It's not uncommon for MDs to do PhDs here in Denmark. So uh, I did that and I did most of it uh, living in Boston and working with people at Harvard Medical School. When I was there, I also did a master's in public health at harvard uh, school of public health and of course as part of that i got some training in epidemiology and statistics so so most of my theoretical background is is based on my phd and my mph
0: so how long how long ago were you in the in the u.s Uh, i was there from
1: 2012
0: to 16 okay and um as part of your work currently, is there a lot of dedicated time for research or is it like you just do this later in the evening and on? Uh,
1: it's uh, it's mostly a hobby as I used to say. Uh, but but so no I work full time clinically. Um, luckily the schedule in residency is not as extreme as it can be in the US, at least for some specialties. So so we have a, a reasonable work week, so there is room for for research as well.
0: That's great. I have to say, I've never been to Denmark, but I'm a big fan of your soccer team. Your football team is, I've, I've always been a, a big fan of uh, of the Danish team um, in soccer. I don't, I actually don't know that they qualify for the World Cup though in 2022? They did. All right. Well, we'll be cheering. They're they doing pretty well. They've been good the last
1: uh, few years, a lot of good players and sort of a good vibe around the whole team. So, yeah. so people are looking forward to the summer.
0: Yeah, well, it's going to be in the in December because it's in Qatar.
1: Oh, that's right, that's right. You're, uh, you're perfectly uh, right. I yeah. always forget that. I, we think it's in the summer, but of course, yeah, it's not. We're,
0: exactly. So, so the reason I reached out to you, Lars, um, and it took us a while to schedule this. Um, I read a paper that you wrote with a couple of colleagues of yours on collider bias. It was a viewpoint in JAMA and in JAMA. The concept of collider bias personally has always been, not always an easily understood concept uh, for a lot of oncologists and frankly, for a lot of physicians. This is not really an oncological issue, but I'm a medical oncologist by training. So I wanted to, um, to try to, I wanted to have you to simplify the concept of collider bias Two listeners who are interested in research and, uh, and and who are listening to the show. And then I as after as we simplify this, I want to try to figure out how do you really apply that concept on some of the studies that were published pertaining to COVID-19. Because COVID-19, it's over two years now since the pandemic started. There are so many flawed studies and some good studies and all that stuff. But clearly some of these flaws could be related to that. So let's start by. I don't know. Let's start, uh, t- give us basics, I'm, I'm, you know, don't pre- pretend people who are listening don't know much about this concept at all. What, what are we talking about when we say collider bias?
1: Yeah, so, so that's, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to try to keep it simple. Um, I, I think a good start is to think of, of bias in general, like what is bias? It's a systematic error in some truth. You wanna, you wanna know some estimate does this treatment work? How large is the effect? Um, And of course, the ideal setting for that are randomized uh, clinical trials, but as we have shown and and described in our paper, some of these biases can occur both in observational studies and in uh, randomized clinical trials. Um, I think some of the confusion before we start with some of the terminology is because of the terminology like different groups of people use different terminology for some of the same things uh, both within medicine but also across uh, disciplines Um, people in economy use terms that that mean the exact opposite or different things in epidemiology or in medicine so so there's a lot of confusing terminology um The terminology we have used in the paper, and and I think is very useful, is the one that most sort of modern epidemiologists use, which is that bias can ultimately be uh, divided into three different groups. So there's the classic confounding, which I think most people are familiar with, they're comfortable with it, they understand the concept and the implications it's fairly easy to explain. You can explain it to someone who is not in medicine or is not in uh, epidemiology because it sort of makes sense. It's intuitive that if someone is more sick and they get the treatment, well, they also have a a worse outcome. And it might not be because of the treatment, but because of this confounder. So confounding is, is fairly straightforward to understand, I think, in many circumstances. Then there's information bias. Uh, which although, is...
0: although, although with confounding, you have to have the confounder has an impact on the outcome that you are studying.
1: Exactly. So it has to have an impact both on the exposure or the intervention you're interested in, but also on the outcome. Um, but, but I think it's, it's usually quite intuitive to explain. If you say that the sickest patients, those who are at highest risk of dying also got this treatment, then people are like, yeah, okay, maybe it's not the treatment that killed them. Then it's because they were high risk that that's sort of, it makes sense, I think. And of course it can be very challenging to identify and control for confounders. But I think the concept is, is something you can explain and understand fairly straightforward. And then there's information bias, which I won't won't spend that much time on, but it's sort of if, if there's some issues with the measurements of your outcomes or your variables, and, and that's that's also something that's sort of intuitively makes sense. And then there's this last category called selection bias, which Collider bias fits uh, under. And, and in fact, I think for almost all, circumstances selection bias and and collider bias are the same concepts at least using the terminology used by by some of the modern epidemiologists Uh, and of course uh, it's it's um a well-known epidemiologist called mikhail hanan who's really written a lot about this and and we have referenced some of his his papers in in our little tutorial here And, and i think if people are interested in that's a really good source he's a very good writer so it's also quite easy to understand so, so collider bias is difficult to explain in a podcast because it's a very sort of visual thing. It's it's even in the word collider, which sort of refers to the use of directed acyclic graphs, which is this concept. It's basically just sort of drawing your assumptions. So you can draw up some variables, some arrows to show some of the causal paths. And the whole idea is that that collider is because in these directed acyclic graphs, it's not that important what they what they are, but it's because something collides on that variable, and that's sort of a weird terminology and and it's hard to understand. Um, another way of looking at it that is that is sort of less technical perhaps is that a collider is something that is caused by another variable, two other variables. So there is a causal path between some variable and the collider, and that's not a problem unless you adjust for condition on that collider. And once you do that, then you get this spurious association between the two other variables. And I think that's...
0: give an example, like I think as you're explaining this, you're probably going to, to illustrate this with an example. So at least people understand from the abstract, you bring it home with an example.
1: Yeah, so... So it is It is a thing I think that is is hard to conceptualize, but once you sort of hear some examples, it, it might make a little bit more sense. So we have one example in the, um, in the manuscript where we say, imagine you're enrolled into a clinical trial and you are only included either if you have one or two risk factors, like you either have to have this risk factor or the other risk factor. If you have both, you're not included. If you have zero, you're not included. It could be some genetic marker, it could be something else. If you then have that cohort of patients, those that are included in the trial, if you were to look at the relationship between those two variables, those two markers, they would be inversely correlated, right? Because you either have one or you have the other. But if you looked at it out in society, there might be no correlation between those two variables. They might be completely independent. they, They could be not related at all. But because we have designed it in a way where we sort of select based on those variables, they become correlated. Another example I like sort of from real life is if you look at the relationship between, let's say, this is a thought example, but like IQ and whether you're good at sports. If you look at the general population, there is no relationship. It, it's, it's, it's not related. Because you're smart, you're not bad at sport or the other way around. However, imagine then you looked at all the the students who were admitted to a uh, very nice college in the United States. There might be two ways to get into that college. Either you're really good at sports and you get a scholarship, or you're really smart and you get a scholarship. So when you look at those that are at that university, they're either very smart, or they're very good at sports. So if you only looked at that group, and did, let's say, just a correlation between those two things, you would see that there was a negative correlation, that if you were very good at sport, perhaps you're not as good as those other people because they were selected based on how how high an IQ they had. So you get this false correlation that some might interpret as, as a causal thing. They might say, oh, people who do sports, they don't study or something. That's why but in fact there's no cause and effect at all it's just a spurious relationship that comes up because we have conditioned or selected a specific group of people and that is those that are at that university or at that college
0: that is very interesting i like that i think that, that see i think once you bring those as an example um really it it, it brings uh, uh, brings it uh, home maybe you could elaborate on this, you said collider bias is something that you also could see in a randomized controlled fashion and uh, trials. And, uh, you know, at least most of us believe this is really the golden, you know, goose, or this is the the, the gold standard uh, prospective randomized controlled trial. How does collider bias uh, impact a prospective randomized controlled trial?
1: Yeah, so, so as, as we talked about, confounding, of course, in the beginning is, is removed if you have randomization, and then the randomization is good. And that is why we like randomized trials so much, because, because they don't have confounding. But of course, that doesn't mean they can't have other biases, and they can have both information bias and collider bias. The thing that can happen with collider bias is all you can always think of it as something that only happens or almost only happens if you restrict or condition on something that happens in the future. So imagine you have a clinical trial, and we have an example in the manuscript as well, where you ideally, you randomize patients, then you follow them up for, let's say, a year, and then you record the outcome on all patients. And you analyze it according to the group they were in intention to treat. And if the outcome is measured correctly, you neither have confounding, collider bias, or information bias. You have a valid estimate of the treatment effect. But of course, in in the real world, that's not always what happens. You have loss to follow-up, for example, which is very common in all types of trials, especially if you have very long follow-up. The example we use in the manuscript is related to the Mediterranean diet, and they had randomized uh, patients either to a Mediterranean diet or a uh, controlled diet or usual, usual diet, whatever they had. And their outcome was uh, cognitive function uh, outlets. I can't remember, the maybe five years after the uh, intervention. The problem is that some people leave the study, leave the trial but you could only analyze outcomes in those that did not lead the trial, right? In those that are not lost to follow-up. You cannot, you don't have the outcomes in those who are not there. And then you can already see there by only only analyzing those that are left, you're already restricting your sample. You're already selecting someone out of the, the trial. And that's where you potentially can have some problems. In this specific example, it could be that cognitive function is related to whether or not you're lost to follow-up, right? It might be that if you have severe dementia, severe cognitive impairment, you don't show up to your uh, follow-up appointment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that means that those that are left are not a representative sample of what you started with. So let's imagine that the diet had Uh, an effect on cognitive function Let's said the Mediterranean diet improved cognitive function however in the control group those who have very poor cognitive function never show up right (laughs) but then in the end it looks like the control group is better than it actually is because all the bad ones never made it to follow up whereas the bad ones in the mediterranean diet group you lifted them up with your intervention and now they're showing up to your follow-up and 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 of course we know this type of bias as as differential loss to follow-up or things like that but but mm, you can say structurally or mechanistically it is a type of collider bias because both cognitive function and diet might have an an effect on the uh, follow-up which is then the collider so it's a little bit more tricky, but it's just a way of sort of formalizing or trying to explain some of these biases that we have known by other names, such as loss to follow.
0: So, but, but uh, if we try to, to simplify it even further, and by the way, you're doing amazing simplifying this. Uh, I, I promise you a lot of folks who are listening, they're having way more grasp on the concept than, than before, but um It's, you're looking at a cause and effect in a randomized controlled fashion, prospective study. And then there's this, another element that is affecting the interpretation. And that element, which is in this situation, lost to follow-up is the collider. Yes,
1: because you're restricting your sample only to those who were not lost to follow-up, right? Only those that are left. Yeah. So it's, it's it's only an issue if you sort of restrict or condition your analysis on something that happens after your
0: intervention
1: or your exposure.
0: Yeah. And there is no way, I mean, you know, I mean, when you lose to follow-up, you lose to follow-up, there's, I mean, frankly there's no way to know why every single patient has lost a follow-up some people could have toxicity some people financial toxicity or physical toxicity or simply they don't want to come into, back to the office and they travel change doctors i mean who the heck knows so as you said it's an inherent bias in any study uh that that i mean so, so is there is there a way to overcome the collider bias impact in a in prospective randomized studies or we just have to live with that
1: um i'll I'll say yes and no i mean it's it's one of those things that are best um dealt with by avoiding it in the first place um and 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 that's one of the main differences between um, collider bias and confounding is the confounding you can actually deal with if you know the confounders Whereas collider bias is best dealt with sort of in the design phase of your trial, or your your observational studies, it's hard to deal with after the fact. So it's hard to deal with if if someone comes up to you and say I have this study, I'm concerned about collider bias, what can I do well we should have talked before you designed the study because that's where the real issue often is. Sometimes you can deal with it uh, with, with some quite complex statistics. You can sometimes deal with some of it and that's not something I'm an expert in at all, but, but there are ways to deal with some of the issue. Lost of follow-up you can deal with if you are able to uh, impute, for example, or if you are able to weigh your, your population based on censoring and, but, but it gets, it gets quite technical and also quite, data demanding. You need good data. You need to be able to know why people left the study, for example.
0: Yeah, And I think, I mean, I think we can agree. There's no imputation model that will ever give you the level of certainty to know why people left the study. Only the folks who left the study will actually tell you. Um, And especially also, it depends on the percent of folks who lost the follow-up, right? I mean, you've got like 40% of people lose the follow-up versus 5%. It's a little bit of a difference in terms of the power, how you interpret the study. And um, for confounders, you're talking about the regression models, right? Like how do you overcome the confounding effect by using Cox regression models and so on? Yeah. Yeah. When you look at what we've dealt with over the past two plus years right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, I can tell you, Lars, I actually, it's been maybe a month since I looked at this. I used to tweet I used to look to go to pubmed.gov, and I would look, I would put COVID-19, and I would look at the number of papers that are actually published in the peer-reviewed literature. And I think the last time I looked was, I mean, I'm talking, we're probably over, actually, what we can do literally, this is how we do it at Healthcare Unfiltered. We literally can put uh, PubMed, um, and if I, I'm going to get to something, I'm trying to, so if I look at COVID-19, we have 251,121 papers since two years, since like January 2020. So we can agree there's a lot of these that are garbage, honestly. But a lot of what we have dealt with with COVID-19 has been based on observational effect, whether it is toxicity, whether it is vaccine-related, whether it is myocarditis, whether, I mean, a lot of this. You are an expert in dissecting some of these things. So t- t- take me through, as you were seeing these papers come out and a lot of policy decisions are made and treatment decisions are being made, Did you? how do you assess the quality of evidence uh, for COVID-19 literature uh, given all of these biases, specifically collider biases? And maybe you can give us some examples of papers that you felt, I mean, if you can, of papers that were kind of crazy, uh, and they still passed the peer review and got published.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's been a very interesting uh, time for 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 medical science. We've seen some some of the best things I've ever seen in in medical science, and, and also a lot of um, not so good um, science coming out. There's been a pressure to to get data out very quickly, and, and sometimes that results in some publications that are uh, less valid than others one of one of the things i do is that, that i do statistical uh, reviews for jama uh, i've been doing that for some years now and um so of course i i i get to see quite a lot of uh potentially high impact manuscripts both observational and randomized trials and and i think um collider bias is is quite common in in some settings and and i think covid is is a very good example for some things And that's also actually the reason why we wrote this little uh, tutorial paper is to sort of, uh, we used an example from the COVID literature because we thought it was a good example to illustrate the concept. The issue with COVID is that uh, you always have to define a group of people you wanna study. And, And there's sort of three options. Either you study everyone, like the whole population, or you study those who have COVID, or you study those that are hospitalized for COVID. That's sort of the the three big uh, groups. And one of the main problems in a lot of the studies that only looked at those that were hospitalized is that they were interested in things that sort of happened before the patient was hospitalized. So early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion whether ACE inhibitors could uh, be beneficial in COVID or harmful, right? There was, there was the main concern was that they were harmful. And and some societies came out and said that people should stop their ACE inhibitor, which we know have benefits uh, outside of COVID. So the problem with that is that if you take a group of patients that are hospitalized with uh, COVID, let's imagine that there's actually a harmful effect of ACE inhibitors on getting COVID. And that was some of the, the arguments early on, that there was something with the receptors, that the virus could better get into the cells and the lungs, and you would get sick. So we imagine that ACE inhibitors increases your risk of COVID. It might also increase your risk of getting hospitalized with COVID. So this is sort of, so now there's there's two ways of getting hospitalized with COVID. This is a, now I'm, I'm painting sort of with the big brush, but, but it's a, Either you get into the hospital because you were on an ACE inhibitor and you got COVID or you got into the hospital because you just had COVID, like you just were sick enough to have COVID. So now we're back to the example with the college and the two different routes into the system. So either you were on an ACE inhibitor and got and therefore ended up in the hospital or you, you just were sick enough. There was maybe some other reasons why you were very sick. Maybe you were obese. Maybe you had comorbidities. Uh, whatever, maybe had a low socioeconomic status. There could be all these risk factors for getting admitted with COVID. The problem here then becomes, if you only look at those that are in the hospital, similar to when we only looked at those that were actually in the fancy college, now there's suddenly this negative association between the different risk factors, because either, and this is of course, a little theoretical, either you were on the ACE inhibitor and that was the cause, or you had other risk factors and that was why you were in the hospital. If you then look at those patients that were in the hospital, it would look like those on ACE inhibitors did much better, that they had better outcomes because they didn't have all the other risk factors.
0: Right.
1: They were there because of the ACE inhibitor and perhaps that was quickly resolved and they were admitted home, whereas those who had more serious risk factors uh, had worse outcomes. So the problem is when you only look at a subgroup of the patients you're actually interested in, in in this case, we were actually interested in everyone, right? The entire population, whether if you had, we're on an ACE inhibitor, you did worse overall. But most of the time, we don't have data on on entire populations and we don't have detailed data, but we might have data on those that are in the hospital. So because of some maybe pragmatic or logistical concerns, we end up with a subgroup of patients, but then we have these issues where colloidal could play a role. And, and and when I first, this is not something I knew a lot about like even five years ago, I, I, I knew some of the concepts, but when I started to look into some of the literature, it sort of dawned on me that this could happen in a lot of different situations. The issue of is of course, that it's hard to quantify how important it is, because you don't know, you can't sort of say, oh, this explains the results, it doesn't explain the result. But you can say that this is a potential issue. Uh, that, that's quite difficult to,
0: to quantify. You know, it's, um, it's interesting, once you bring this as an example uh, of some of the COVID-19 uh, literature, it be- not only it becomes clearer, but it also becomes a little bit challenging to interpret the literature and I, think, um, and, I, and I think what I have noticed over the past couple of years is everybody has become an expert overnight in COVID-19. Like, you know, we had like everybody on Twitter and social media became, my goodness, an expert. They know everything about pertaining what to do. And the critical thinking about some of these papers have been minimized. I mean, I you know, because, you know, everybody wanted everything to work and uh and there's a like you said there's a pressure on making sure everything works and so on um and i think denmark denmark at least was uh one of the fewer countries that early on probably they lifted most of the non-pharmacologic interventions correct i mean i if i my memory serves me right
1: yes in in the later later part of the yeah the and like yeah, yeah later but, later but the, the, early on the, they they were also quite quick to implement them early on yeah, yeah. they were they were very quick to start some restrictions and then also to lift them again, but but we also have very very high vaccine rates in Denmark, so so I, so I think there's multiple reasons for that.
0: But did you, did you like is the um, was there what was there um, uh, epidemiologic studies that were country specific or just general stuff and just interpretation was different? I mean how how did you feel that the world interpreted some of the literature that's coming out, with how much of critical thinking did we do versus being reactive and just took the results face value? And um, were you able to review anything in terms of epidemiologic literature pertaining to either myocarditis or the non-pharmacologic interventions such as masking, such as schools, kids, anything like that? Or was that something you did not look at?
1: Yeah, No, I did not. I, I'm, I'm in no way an expert in, in COVID or any measures to deal with COVID. Um, I, I review papers, of course, but, but that's sort of individual papers. I, I don't review the entire literature on this. So, so, so I, I think I would be uncomfortable at, at answering too many questions about it because I simply don't know the literature very well. I think, as most people did, we tried to keep up with the literature in the beginning and, and sort of read the big trials and the big papers. But as you just mentioned, it, it quickly got um, completely impossible to keep up with this literature. Um, so, so, so I think, um, and, and 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 I think that's a, that's a lesson learned, uh, perhaps that that it, it it almost became overwhelming the amount of data that was out there, uh, and and there was certainly. At least in the beginning, a focus on quantity and not necessarily quality, but people were also uh, desperate to to try to figure out how to deal with this uh, pandemic.
0: Are there other examples from the COVID-19 literature that um, illustrate the collider bias um, uh, concept? Uh, Anything else that um, uh, comes to mind?
1: Uh, I don't have any specific examples in mind. I, I think it's it can be a general issue when you look at sort of subsets of what you're actually interested in. So if you're looking at people in the hospital, but you're actually interested in everyone, or you're looking at those that tested positive for COVID, but you're actually interested in, let's say everyone who had COVID and not just tested positive. Because of course, those that, test positive are not the same as those that do not test positive, To just stay at home with their symptoms. So so every time you sort of restrict your population in a way, you have to be very careful and, and sort of consider collider bias as, as a potential issue.
0: Yeah. Lars, anything else pertaining to collider bias that you feel, again, the goal here is to uh, illustrate and explain things to to listeners to make sure that after listening to this, they have better grasp of the concept. And at least they are more aware of it when they are reading papers that are looking at cause and effect type of thing.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a few things. I think the first thing is that this is something you have to deal with upfront. So you actually have to think very careful about your research question, what kind of question you want to answer. Um, And that sort of requires some very sometimes specific, like what's the exact intervention I want to look at, what's the exact population, and then think, is that actually the population I'm, I'm looking at? And, and I have I have felt that these directed acyclic graphs, there was another of these uh, JAMA guide to statistics and methods about uh, directed acyclic graph, graphs just a few months before we published ours. And I think it's a very, very simple, but very useful tool to understand some of these concepts, because just when I'm explaining them now, I'm like, "This is confused." Like, it's it's hard to get, to grasp some of these connections. But actually, when you draw it up, it sometimes helps. So I think it's a very good thing to sort of plan ahead before you collect your data, before you plan your big study, before you write your grant. Yeah. Write out your assumptions, uh, draw these uh, graphs, and see how what issues could be there. That that's true for confounding as well. And, and then I think another general rule that I at least. I tell to my students, and and this is not like a 100% thing, it's just a general rule that you should always be careful about conditioning or restricting based on something that happens in the future. And and you can also think of it as a clinician, right? When when you're standing and have to make a medical decision, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You can only make your decision based on the information you have right now. So if you design an observational study where the decision you're going to make is influenced what happens a year later, then that, that doesn't answer a real clinical question, right? Because you you as a clinician would never know that information. You wouldn't be able to say, oh, I, I will give you this medication, but only if I know 100% sure you're going to take it every day for a year. But if your analysis says, I only analyze those that took the medication for a year, then that's not the clinical question. And and you can get rid of a lot of these biases, especially collider bias, if you sort of think like a clinician or think like a randomized trial. And that's the so-called target trial framework that Miguel Hernan has also advocated, where you think, if I had to design a randomized trial... I would say, right now, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I randomize you to this intervention or this intervention. And whatever happens after that, we can't sort of um, restrict our analysis. We can't only look at those to have follow-up. We can't only look at those who continue the treatment or whatever. So, so, So I think thinking as a clinician or thinking as a trialist is sometimes very helpful when you do observational studies. And I use that myself a lot, sort of trying to conceptualize when I design an observational study. How would this look if I was a clinician? Like I was making a decision or I was designing a a randomized clinical trial?
0: Very, very important points you bring up, Lars. I mean, the the only comment I have and, and curious your thoughts is that there are times you know there are limitations to what you're designing. Not a whole lot you could do about that though. Like in other words, like you just said, actually, I like the example you gave. Your, you know, Patients are receiving a pill on a clinical trial, and you, you're going to prescribe that pill on the study, and you hope they're going to adhere to it. But technically, you really, unless you're monitoring them 24-7, you really can't tell. So while you know there's probably a limitation in the interpretation, I'm not really sure there's always a way to overcome that interpretation. I guess what I'm trying to say. Sometimes being aware of a limitation of a study does not always equate that you have the ability to overcome that limitation.
1: No, absolutely. Um, but and I, and I think that's that's a very very good point. I when I review uh, manuscripts, even for JAMA, which is of course a, a high impact journal, if if the authors are just uh, very honest and and sort of say these are the limitations and, and therefore more research is needed or this is hypothesis generating for a clinical trial. I'm happy with that. The problem is, of course, when we don't acknowledge the limitations and, and simply Conclude something that is not based on the data. So, for example, the the, the manuscript we um, we comment on the tutorial. I thought it was great. I recommended that it was published. It was published in JAMA. It's a great paper. They were they acknowledged their limitations and and so forth. So so I think a lot of these things are very good at generating hypotheses or getting smarter or or getting getting us better at designing the next study or the next trial. As long as we acknowledge that. Um, and, and understand that there's, there's more to bias than just confounding. I think that was one of the goals of that, that little paper as well.
0: Well, you articulated your view uh, extremely well. And certainly the paper caught my attention. And I, I loved reading it. And um, I will put a link for the paper in the podcast notes. So at least folks can, can check on it. Uh, before I let you go, I'm very grateful for your time. And I know we have different time zones between Denmark and Chicago. But uh, what's next for you when you're done? Uh, here tonight no 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 like when you're done with your training and everything oh well so
1: so i hope to go into uh intensive care clinically and then continue my research there i am starting to have a little research group here in aarhus in denmark um so so um things are good we're running clinical trials we are doing some fun stuff with observational studies and 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 more advanced methodology um so so i'm looking forward to to being done with residency of course but but i'm having a good time uh, while well I'm... i
0: think uh for for somebody like yourself who is a resident i can promise you that you know a lot more than many attending physicians <laughs> that uh, i mean your your fund of knowledge with everything is is amazing um just curious one thoughts how is the funding for research in denmark like what's uh, Do you, do you, usually you get funding from your local institution, government, pharma, how do you support your research initiatives?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, quite similar to the, to the U.S. uh, system where there's uh, public grants like the NIH, we have something similar here in Denmark. And then what we also have is, is a bunch of private grants that are not, that are not tied to like, uh industry in, in, in they are but not in the sense that you're like studying what the industry are studying it's just non-profit big foundations i know there's some of those in the u.s as well so so it's a combination of getting uh, public funding and getting funding from some of those uh, private foundations and then of course there's also more what would you call it like Direct pharma pharmacological like pharma research where you collaborate with pharma on, on specific products but but I I don't do any of that uh, all our funding is is um, either from the public or the nonprofit private foundations.
0: Well, I, I want to thank you so much for spending some time uh, with me on the healthcare unfiltered podcast. I I really. Um, Really appreciate that. And, and, I, and I hope it wasn't too painful for you to be part of this podcast, but uh, I, I'm hoping to call upon you in the next uh, year or so for more, for more help in some of these difficult-to-understand concepts when it comes to trial design and statistical design. Great.
1: Happy to help if I can.
0: Thanks everyone for tuning in. I appreciate your support. Thank you for, and thank you Dr. Lars Anderson for really excellent episode that simplified a difficult concept. I'm always curious about your feedback. Please reach out to me. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or you can send me an email uh, through my website, www.shadiabhan.com. I appreciate your support and would love for you to rate the show, subscribe the show, refer friends and colleagues, and also watch the show on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Before I let you go, I'm gonna leave you with a saying by Rumi, ignore those that make you feel, ignore those that make you fearful and sad, that degrade you back. Towards disease and death. Until next time.